Good morning. Welcome to Money Management. I'm Mike Mayo with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. And we're here every Saturday at 9 in the morning to talk with you about the markets and the economy and to give you some insights into what the heck is going on out there so you can get some good ideas to help uh, make some good investment decisions. Now, we did have an interesting week. Uh, we had the uh, new record highs being set and other exciting stuff like that. So let's get into the data dumping and see how that all played out. Uh, yesterday, the Dow closed up 89 points at 35,819. The S&P, having hit a new all-time high earlier, was at 4605. NASDAQ also sitting another new all-time high earlier, uh, ended at 15,498. Russell 2000 closed the week at 2297. Gold uh, about unchanged week over week at 1782 an ounce. Silver a little lower week over week at 2385. Crude pretty much unchanged. It was at 83.57 a barrel. The tenure was lower uh, by uh, at 1.55% and soft white wheat closed the week at 10.63 a bushel. Now, we're doing pretty good in the market, contrary to what you may think, because we're flipping all over the place, it appears. But uh, the S&P and global stocks have totally erased the September pullback. Matter of fact, you know, we're in earnings season. Of the 117 companies that are in the S&P that have reported earnings, 84% of those folks have beaten expectations. And uh, Jim Reed, who is head of thematic research at Deutsche Bank, said earnings have helped and a reminder that U.S. reporting so far has been better than the long-term average in terms of beats. Now, that's a good thing. And we had uh, the S&P, uh, as I mentioned briefly, uh, it hit its 72nd intraday high uh, of this year, just this year. And it's 58th record close of just this year. NASDAQ had a new high yes, uh, Thursday and Friday. So, and then what was it? I guess Monday, Tuesday, the Dow had hit a new high. So they're all going in the right direction. And just to kind of keep some of this uh, in perspective, you know, you see the news on the big tech name stocks and you see how the, uh, they seem to have a big effect on markets as a whole. Well, that's because 30% of the total weighting of the S&P is tech stocks. So you got to figure if they're doing something, good or bad, everybody else is going to probably get uh, hit by that same brush. Now, uh, leading the October rally has been the energy sector. It's up 11% just this month. We've also seen some more of the basic uh, economy stocks performing well, uh, up seven, at least 7% this month, where the industrials, real estate, materials, financials, they're all doing well. And Anu Gagar, who is a global investment strategist at Commonwealth Financial, uh, offered this. He said, a rising tide of earnings is lifting all the boats and adding fuel to the bull market fire. Way to call it Anu. All right. And Lindsey Bell, chief investment strategist at Ally Invest, had this to offer. Transports, consumer discretionary, large cap tech have led the market higher these past two weeks. And that signals that growth worries around supply chain constraints are beginning, operative term, to fade. And that's good news. And uh, let's hit some of these uh, individual stock uh, news items that came out this week, some earnings. Um, 
let's see, Alphabet, which is Google's parent company, had its highest quarterly revenue increase in 14 years. A lot of companies putting money into their ads. Uh, biggest growth for Google ad sales in 14 years as well. Now on Amazon, they <laughs> they dropped right away because uh, when they after they announced their um, earnings because they had earnings of six dollars twelve cents. They had anticipated eight ninety two. Now quick math says that's quite not enough. I don't think. Uh, but what's happening is again the Apple and uh, let's see Amazon are both being hit by the supply chain. Uh, labor issues, whereas Microsoft uh, is primarily you know, cloud-based, so they don't get as caught up in that stuff. That just makes me think that, uh, you know, the sell-off that these guys hit, I think all of them traded uh, higher in the after-hours markets on Friday, uh, which says to me that, you know, okay, that was a trader response, and that's pretty typical. That's how those kids work. Um, when the stock sold off, but now the uh, adults are looking at things and saying, hmm, longer term, yeah, those guys still look pretty good. Uh, Starbucks, uh, they uh, saw a drop in their revs, excuse me, their earnings because they did miss on the revenues. Uh, Tesla, well, they had a pretty good week. Uh, they surpassed a trillion dollars in market value. And they did announce uh, also in the week you may have heard that Hertz is working with them. They're going to order 100,000 100, Tesla cars to build out their uh, electric rental fleet by the end of next year. UPS says strong economic growth globally is keeping demand for its shipping services high. U.S. Steel, definitely a representative of a basic economy. Uh, it took off like the proverbial scalded dog because they had third quarter earnings with where they just beat them to death and they also raised the dividend, something you haven't seen from those kinds of companies for a number of years. And uh, just as an aside, um, Microsoft did pass Apple yesterday, uh, making it the world's most valuable publicly traded company. And this was because Apple underperformed in earnings and at least as far as the traders are concerned and the Microsoft Folks got a, a pat on the head from the traders. So there you go. But keep your eye on that horse race. I'm sure that's going to go back and forth over the years. In terms of some economic reports that we saw this week, well, they were generally pretty good. Let's start with the big one, the GDP, the gross domestic product. Um, it grew by, <laughs> it just sounds funny compared to what we had, 2% uh, in the third quarter. And uh, that's just a little bit lower because we had about six and a half in the first quarter, 6.7 in the second quarter. That was a growth. But those were all kind of artificially stimulated by the government's money. Uh, the business uh, reopenings, you know, is just kind of got caught up in the, in a good way, uh, with the wave of events. So responding, reacting to the drop that happened in uh, early 2020. Now we're getting the continuation of the rebound, especially as we break out of uh, the constraints we've been operating under. And uh, we've got, let's see here. Oh, yes. Uh, durable goods orders. Uh, those are things meant to last more than three years. 
Well, they dropped a little bit in September, but that's due primarily to the transportation sector because it's all over the bar, the board. You know, those guys are the, uh, uh, you know, like airplanes and stuff like that. So w when they book their orders and when it gets reported, I mean, there's going to be a big variance from month to month. And so that's going to have a major effect on the numbers. Uh, so if you took out transportation, durable goods were up. That's pretty good. West Texas Intermediate, that's the uh, contract that uh, is primarily representative of U.S. crude prices. Uh, it rose to uh, its highest point since October 2014 this past week. And that's increased global demand. And again, global includes us. Uh, and uh, the economy is recovering across the world. So uh, don't look for that to slip back too much lower from here. Um, Personal income fell uh, 1% in September, but uh, I don't think you need to get too concerned about it because the unemployment benefits ended nationally in September 6th, and far more important, uh, the private sector wages and salaries rose. They're now up 10.5% over the past year. The ending of checks from uh, D.C. hasn't seemed to slow spending, which rose in September as consumption of both goods and services increased, it says here. Consumer spending did increase uh, in the third quarter, mostly on non-durables and services, but spending on vehicles dropped 54% annualized. And that's, you know, steepest in more than 40 years, but hey, that's not a surprise. I mean, if you don't have vehicles, you can't sell them to anybody. Welcome to the supply chain. <clears throat> so, Let's see uh, what else we keep on. Internet, GDP, and durable goods orders, and like that. So, I want to talk with you uh, right now about uh, some of the real estate news that came out this past week. Then we're going to, I don't know if segue is a good word, but we're going to move into some comments about inflation and a little, oh, by the way, about gold, the outlook for that some of the pundits uh, have and other thoughts along those lines. So, Hope you find it beneficial. Now, let's see. In real estate, I don't think this comes exactly as a breaking news, but housing prices are at record highs. That's both nominally and even in terms of inflation adjusted. Year over year in August, prices were up 19.8%. That was the same amount of increase as we saw in July. This, according to S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller Indices. However, Interestingly, this is the first time the annual gain hasn't increased since early 2020. Hmm. Are we peaking? I, don't know, I wouldn't want to take that bet necessarily. But the uh, 20 city composite that those folks run, uh, which is the, of values, um, was up 19.7%, down a fraction from 20% in August. But as an aside, Prices in all 20 of the cities they follow uh, are at all-time highs. And, you know, home prices, realistically, they're un unlikely to cool significantly, certainly in the near term, because both home buyer and investor demand are still pretty high. On the other hand, the supply of homes for sale, especially at the lower end of the market, remains extremely lean. Some new supply did come over the summer, but it's falling yet again because people are snatching them up. Now, according to Selma Hep, her title is Deputy Chief Economist at 
core logic. Selma has this to offer. She said, while strong home price appreciation rates are narrowing the pool of buyers, particularly first-time buyers, the depth of supply and demand imbalance and robust demand among higher income earners will continue to push prices higher. Persistently strong demand among traditional home buyers has been amplified by an increase in demand among investors this summer. So, you've got the corporate folks buying up bunches of homes. you got each of us saying, I'll take one of those too, if you don't mind. So, um, yeah, it's, it's continuing, I'm sure. New home sales in September, largest monthly gain in more than a year. And that was better than even the best forecast from any economics group. The pace of sales is now returning to an upward trend and signaling that the housing market has indeed found its footing after some, uh, I guess you could say, weak head fakes earlier in the year. And it's true, too, that, again, how overall housing inventories have been rising a touch and now sit at the highest level since 2008. This has pushed the supply, and basically supply meaning how long it would take to sell all the houses at today's sales pace. So the availability, the pool, if you will, represents about 5.7 months of homes. Now that's up from a record low reading of three and a half months uh, late last year. However, and again, another catch-22, almost all this inventory is from homes where construction has either not yet started or is still underway. Now, pending home sales, that's a measure of signed contracts to buy existing homes, down 2.3% in September compared with August, 8% lower than with 20, September 2020. That's according to the National Association of Realtors. Well, some of that is supply. Some of that is a little bit higher mortgage rates. Uh, it's just a comment and people just saying, well, wait a minute, let's see what's going on here. And uh, just as an aside from the Puget Sound Business Journal, uh, for corporate office rates, Seattle uh, had a, a vacancy of 15.9% in September. That was up from 10% a year earlier. So and uh, with lease rates down three percent, so uh, they're not exactly having people running over and saying, "Hmm, I'll take some space." It's just that kind of market right now. Now, um, you know, there's this. Uh, I guess you say, what happens? Especially, I'm thinking now in terms of the markets. What happens when folks' beliefs haven't quite caught up with reality? Well, uh, let me give you some examples. In 2009, uh, when we first uh, started coming out of the abyss, the S&P gained 27%. Now, that was pretty dang good by anybody's imagination. And yet, uh, Franklin Templeton, uh, the big uh, mutual fund firm, uh, conducted a survey uh, in early 2010, and they found that of the folks they asked, 66% of them thought that the market had fallen that year. What? I mean, they're looking every day, you read the paper. No. The idea that the market was surging sounded crazy to those folks because, well, you remember the market crashed. That was still a powerful, well, still is to some people a powerful narrative, but certainly after 2008. Um, and then, <clears throat> excuse me, 
that you know folks just clung to it that was that was what they believed and so the facts weren't going to confuse them now lower income workers have seen some of the largest rate try it again mike the largest recent wage gains in percentage terms and that's not just a quirk of this pandemic it's been like that since 2018. Now that sounds crazy to some because it's definitely counter to the long-held long media narrative that high-wage workers are booming while the bottom stagnates and declines. No, no, no. And again, this is not just a function of current uh, wage gains uh, in order to attract uh, workers. Now Exxon has doubled its stock price in the last year. Zoom is down almost 50%. And once again, that might sound crazy because once again, as apparently is so quote-unquote obvious to media speakers, the narrative of less fossil fuel, more work from home is getting lots of press. But when the markets fully price in what's seemingly obvious, whether that's good or bad, it only takes a little nudge in the other direction to trigger enormous moves. So when expectations move more slowly than reality, which happens more often than not, it's usually because while most people claim they want good information, what they actually want is information that conforms, confirms their already closely held beliefs. That's called a confirmation bias. Now, one other point, uh, not necessarily related, uh, Ryan Dietrich, he's chief market strategist at LPL. He said, seasonal tailwinds, improving market internals, and clear signs of a peak in the Delta variant all provide potential fuel for stocks heading into year end. We maintain our overweight stocks recommendation as a result. A fine fellow is Ryan. So we're close to the break, but not quite there. So uh, let me uh, start uh, talking with you a little bit about inflation. You know, it's getting all kinds of press all the time. And I think some of it is because it's been such a non-event for 10 years that now that it's starting to uh, be part of the conversation again, it's getting beaten to death. I mean, that's all that the media guys can talk about. You know, they kind of lost interest in the COVID thing, it seems like, thank heavens. But uh, now all they can spell is inflation. So just be prepared to be getting beaten up with all of this. So I'll try to keep you uh, separated from the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. Farmers know what that means. <laughs> so media members, experts, quote unquote, economists, politicians, seem to think we either have inflation, shortages, or a combination. So, uh, I, you know, I'd say that's wrong on all of the above. It, because who of those folks was even talking about supply chain shortages or demand-driven inflation early last year? Nobody. Nobody. And then came March 2020, and all those politicians just flat panicked. And in panicking, they imposed, uh, to be polite, a rather drastic form of command and control on our economy. So now, I will add that a lot of some of these comments are my opinion some are facts i'll try to how might i say split those for you when i'm uh, pontificating so you can hopefully make your own decisions now um so as we were saying march 2020 
politicians all threw their hands in the air and started doing the funky chicken because they didn't know what to do. So what they do? The worst possible thing? They put command and control on our economy. Consenting, profitable economic, economic activity. I think it's economic. We'll go with that word. Consenting, profitable economic activity was suddenly declared illegal. Yet the politicians and media are now only wringing their hands about the lack of supplies. See, these guys, they don't understand economics. I'm sorry. It just, they don't. Now, what did they think was going to happen? I mean, <laughs> just, you know, a lot of people, I don't know if any of you have ever lived on the coast. I'm sure you have. But those folks say have they kind of an interesting view of the world because everything just shows up. You know, things in the groceries, things in stores in general, Amazon certainly a prime example. It just shows up. They don't they don't understand about production. They don't understand about growing things. They don't, it just shows up in little packages. And so what could possibly happen? So, you know, politicians couldn't ever, ever create or legislate all the billions of people working together around the world. And then they, but they sure could break voluntary economic arrangements, couldn't they? We don't suddenly have an inflation problem. To say, to say we do is, well, kind of like going when the Soviets were holding forth and they had inflation because all the goods worth good at getting were difficult to find and incredibly expensive if they could be found. You know, the Soviets had a, had a phrase that said, we'll pretend to work it if you get you pretend to get paid. It was kind of a unique way of doing things then. Uh, but in our case, now here, here's just a little bit of personal opinion coming in. We've had a lockdown problem created by fearful politicians that has suffocated commercial cooperation around the world. And with work divided less than it used to be, productivity is naturally lower than it used to be. You know, the thing is, these supply shortfalls, the things, you know, we can't get stuff. It's not evidence of inflation. I mean, you know, those, the, the pictures we're all familiar with now with all the ships sitting offshore. That, they, oven unto themselves, they're not causing inflation. They got the stuff there, but if it doesn't get off, you can't buy it. And those things that have made it off, and if you really like it, you're going to pay whatever. Welcome to inflation. Okay? So we definitely know from 20th century that when politicians, authoritarians, or both, have substituted their highly intensely narrow knowledge for that of the marketplace, the logical result is that immense desire for whatever little and lousy supply, supply is available. When we're not economically free, bare shares are one of the inevitable results. You know, supply shortfalls are not evidence of inflation. A rise in one price simply due to lack of supply implies a fall in other prices. So we're back to the central planning issue. And when you have the power to quite literally shut off sources to the producers, not to mention the wealth produced by those producers, you have the power to impose command and control. And so they did. And by doing so, the supply chains that we had been painstakingly created by 
in self-interested, spontaneous form over many decades suddenly broke apart. Just don't call it inflation. The result, maybe, but that of and unto itself is not inflation. Now, here, here's something I thought was, here's a guy overreaching to the max. Jack Dorsey, he's uh, the founder of Twitter and Square, so the guy is no dimbo by any stretch. But he put forth a thought on hyperinflation a week ago Friday. He said, and I'm quoting, hyperinflation is going to change everything. It's happening. I mean, no argument, just it's happening. He noted that an inflation rate of 16% was possible in the U.S. and globally. I'm happy to report that not everyone agreed, however. Steve Hankey is an economist at Johns Hopkins University, and he took Dorsey to task for his comment. He said, and I'm quoting from Mr. Hankey, there have been 62 certified hyperinflations in world history, world history. At present, no country is experiencing hyperinflation. So what the heck is hyperinflation? That's when the price of goods and services increase uncontrollably for a sustained period of time. The technical def definition of the term though sets a high threshold with price increases being uh, anywhere from 50% per month to 1,000% a year. And they, that, that tends to occur around hugely disruptive uh, geopolitical events. But to put this in context, if you had uh, uh, this kind of hyperinflation, a $2 cup of coffee with a 2% inflation rate costs $2.04. Okay. With the hyperinflation rate of 1,000%, that cup would cost $22 each. Three fifty for a gallon of milk, thirty-eight fifty. <laughs> you may be uh, renting a blue tarp because rent on a two thousand per month two-bedroom apartment, twenty-two thousand. Yeah, a month. Hyperinflation is not a good thing. And while we currently don't have the ingredients for that, we do have the ingredients for moderately high inflation because oversized fiscal policy can cause high inflation. Companies with real assets, debts that get eroded by inflation, and the ability to raise their prices can do well and have done so at other times when inflation was high. So before you make any portfolio adjustments, it's important to remember that sustained periods of elevated inflation, I mean, if you will, regular inflation, is quite rare in the U.S. Uh, those folks who uh, <laughs> uh, share with me the... Uh, being close to full-grown, will remember the uh, ultra-high inflation of the 1970s and early 80s. But in hindsight, it's clear that that was a very unique period. In fact, deflationary pressures almost have been more difficult to tame, as students of the Great Depression will attest, and uh, to some extent, uh, folks in Japan right now. Over the past 100 years, U.S. inflation has stayed below 5% for the vast majority of the time, and that's a year. These numbers they bandy about here are monthlies. So more recently, in the aftermath of the 2007-09 uh, occurrence, inflation has had, I mean, it was tough to hit even 2% on a sustained basis. And that's despite all the stimulus measures engineered by the Fed trying to get to the 2%. 
And there's another important point, mostly at the extremes. When inflation is at 6% or above, and again, we're talking annually, <coughs> excuse me, financial assets tend to struggle. Stocks have come under pressure when inflation goes negative, as one would expect. Now, for investors, some inflation can be a good thing. Matter of fact, even during times of higher inflation, stocks and bonds have generally provide, provided solid returns. I had, I looked, and found um, what was inflation and what did the S&P do through most of the years of the 70s because, well, one, that's when I started in the business, but also because that's when things were not too good. And we went from 1970 when we had inflation, again, annualized at 5.8%, the S&P was up 36 In 1974, which was the worst year, we had inflation of 11.1% with the market down 26%. Now, two years later, we had inflation of only 5.7% and the market up 23.8%. So you can have, the point here is that you can have higher inflation than what we've been dealing with uh, and still be able to get mm, good results in the stock market. So don't let these people confuse you. I want to touch one other thing on inflation before I go on. Um, M2, which is the money supply, which includes basically all the money that's floating out there, uh, is growing at about a 12% annual rate. In our meaning retail bank accounts, that's us folks, uh, has $4 trillion of extra money. So households have never been so flush. It's no wonder that demand is way ahead of supply these days. And again, for the looks of things, that's not going to change anytime soon. So that is also a component of inflation as such. Now, uh, I talked about this before, but I got to do it one more time because it's being talked about again. And we're talking about gold here. The consumer price index is up 5.4% year over year. Uh, that's just, you know, we haven't seen that in about 10 years. However, gold is down 5.4% on the year. So in my view, history shows gold inflation hedging reputation is, let's just say, hollow. And as a recent example, and despite the consumer price index going up from 1.3% in December, gold has been sideways to lower throughout. And Gold has fallen back with the inflation staying elevated, not what you'd expect from an inflation hedge. From this just this past August, it's down about 14% from that record high. And that was when the inflation was only 1%. So obviously that's just one period. But here's the thing. Even in, in other inflationary periods, gold's performance has been, uh, let's be polite and call it spotty. It's an unreliable hedge. It's performed well post-gold standard up until September 80. But over the long term, gold, I should say, but over the long term, gold has, in fact, outpaced, outpaced the consumer price index. Okay. Now, since December 74, when prohibitions on private gold ownership in the U.S. ended, CPA, CPI, consumer price index, inflation has averaged 3.6% versus gold 4.9%. But there are decades-long droughts when gold was in a long-term decline, like from 1980 to 2000. 
and that was right after it hit its all-time real all-time high in 1980. This highlights how well gold, uh, doing well in gold requires remarkable timing and inflation rates are not going to help you with that. So as we see, in attitudes toward inflation and their effect on gold are, let's just call it inconsistent, and it makes gold move impossible to time. And that's not great if you're trying to use it as an inflation hedge. Meanwhile, if you're looking at longer time frames, stocks are far better at outpacing inflation. Up 12.4% annualized since 1974 with much more frequent gains and lower volatility than gold. So, you know, it's just, I get folks, say, oh yeah, gold's a good hedge. No, it's not. That's all. Like I've talked before, use it to hold your door open, but that's about all. So, there's been a lot of talk that Americans, well, they want a lot of things, apparently, but they want the government to provide free college tuition, free universal health care, and, of course, fight climate change. But if you ask those folks if they're willing to pay $2 or $10 or even $100 more a month for these things, that support goes right out the window. Just, just say it. So in times like these, when we've got stocks hitting record highs, it's an ideal moment to keep in mind that, well, I don't know how else to say it, but you haven't really become that much smarter because your account balances have gone up. In other words, there's a phrase in the business, don't confuse brains with the bull market. Now, when the markets go down, that doesn't necessarily mean you're a dumb guy either. You know, It's just all the leading financial pornography networks start yelling at you that you should save yourself before you end up living under that bridge. You know, feels like a wild animal is chasing you. So there must be only something to do, and I have to run. No, you don't. So by recovering so quickly, as we've seen September since September, stocks have once again taught us, I think, two pretty good lessons, or reinforced them anyway. Number one, volatility goes both ways. People often use volatility and negativity incorrectly. I hear it all the time. Volatility simply means movement. That's not a bad thing because volatility is up and down. High volatility simply means the market movements are bigger, bigger up and bigger down. Usually the bigger up and bigger down come pretty much hand in hand, like one following the other, which is why stocks often recover swiftly from pullbacks and corrections. Now, during bull markets, those Good, bad bursts, if you will, often happen in quick succession. If you were to bail at the first sign of trouble, you could very well miss the good burst that follows and rendering the whole approach counterproductive. We've had so many wiggles with stocks as we're getting to an almost 23% year-to-date return. That's this year. And that's, again, as of yesterday's close. There's really little point in worrying about it. They're just, it's just part and parcel of how stocks work. I mean, you just, you just have to accept that. The other thing that I think stocks have taught us recently is that stocks often bounce while news is still bad because stocks are anticipating. They look forward. The, uh, you know, these, again, as I said, look, the GDP and these other reports, those are rearward looking. The markets are forward looking. So, Tying volatility to any one specific issue, that's really kind of a tough thing to do. But pullbacks and corrections often feature 
what we call in the biz ghost stories. Now, ghost stories start with a grain of truth, some negative development, and take it far beyond reality, way off to a place where expectations get irrationally low. And that helps stocks price the negativity relatively quickly and enables them to move on. This falls pullback had a couple of these ghost stories, I think. Well, we had the global supply chain mayhem, along with the European and Chinese energy shortages. Each do present some modest near-term economic headwinds and are still playing out. For instance, they globally, as again we've alluded to earlier, the container ships are still just out there cooling their jets uh, outside major ports waiting for a turn to dock, a big cause of empty shells. Now, European Europe's benchmark natural gas prices have fallen a bit from early October, but even now they're over 450, 450% above their low in early March. As of mid-October, China was still reportedly enduring localized power cuts. And also Europe this summer, <laughs> for all their wind machines, there was a small problem. They didn't have any wind. And so now they had to go looking for the coal, and that helps kind of reinforce, well, anyhow, it's not a good loop to be caught in. The bad news for fearful investors is that stocks never sound an all clear. They will never go exactly as you anticipate. If you wait for these ghost stories conclusions, you're going to miss out on the likely fast rebound. The hardest part of investing is the need to stay disciplined throughout these speed bumps and bad news. Your reward? You get the stock's long-term returns and you need those returns to reach your long-term goals as the vast majority of us do. So your patience is vital to your financial future. Most investors worry too much about the downside. And if you do that, the upside won't take care of itself. If you're constantly focusing on what can go wrong, what you think a portfolio is going to look like, I mean, it's not going to be good. I've seen these over the years, and let me tell you, the upside did not take care of itself. I guess you could say worrying is normal. Okay. Uh, expect the worst and bathe in the dopamine when it doesn't come to pass. Bill Miller is a famous uh, mutual fund uh, manager. Uh, you can Google Bill Miller Wealth Fund, I think. Anyhow, he puts out an investor letter. He, uh, I think, captures what m most investors ought to have. And this is Bill Miller speaking. When I'm asked what I worry about the market, the answer is usually nothing. Because everyone else in the market seems to spend an inordinate time worrying. So all of the relevant worries seem to be covered. My worries won't have any effect except to detract from something much more useful, which is trying to make more good long-term investment decisions. Write that down. <laughs> it's good gouge. Well, I thank you very much for listening. I hope you found it helpful. And I hope you have a great week. Uh, getting closer to zag time. So thank you very much for listening. As I said, this is Money Management. I'm Mike Mayo with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. We'll see you next Saturday at 9 in the morning. <music>
Opinions, forecasts, and case studies are for illustrative purposes only and may only be relevant at the time of recording. Certain sectors in the market, such as international and emerging markets, certain fixed income, including high-yield bonds, precious metals, mid- and small company securities, have greater risks that are generally outlined in their prospectus, contract, or offering document. Any guarantees or protections offered through insurance products are subject to the claims-paying ability of the issuing insurance company. Diversification, asset allocation, or no guarantees or protections against loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, and there is always risk associated with investment.